0: all right well we are on lesson eight of our uh church information class booklet uh last week we began what we confess about the sabbath day in worship and today we're going to continue that topic uh this is a big topic and it warrants two weeks um we do have a lot of material to go over this week, so uh, Lord willing, we will get through it all. And then next week will be the last lesson, um, and we will we will discuss the last lesson, and then uh, for those of you who may be interested in uh, becoming members here, uh, we can begin talks about when to arrange interviews with the session to discuss membership and uh, we'll go from there uh, as far as arranging a time for during the worship service to take those covenant vows upon yourself. But we are in lesson number eight, what we confess about the Sabbath day and worship. Matt, can I get you to open us in prayer?
1: Father, we thank you again for this morning. Um, We thank you, Father, for the teaching that we were about to receive on the Sabbath day. pray, Father, that we would uh, diligently listen and apply it to our lives. pray
0: this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, query number five. Uh, We looked at it last week. Uh, and we're going to continue looking at it this week. To the end that you may grow in the Christian life, do you promise that you will diligently read the Bible, engage in private prayer, keep the Lord's Day, regularly attend the worship services, observe the appointed sacraments, and give to the Lord's work as he shall prosper you. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verses four to six gives us the fourth commandment where we uh, gain our understanding of the moral requirement to observe the Sabbath day. Oh, I'm sorry. That was last week. This week is... The second commandment where we where we get the moral command in how to worship God, Uh, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So last week we looked at the fourth commandment and the Sabbath day and the importance of the Sabbath day, what's required of us, what are our duties, what's forbidden Uh, in in the fourth commandment, the sins that are forbidden in the fourth commandment. Today, we are going to consider the second commandment, uh, how we are to worship God. The first commandment tells us who we are to worship. The second commandment tells us how we are to worship. And a lot of this section will probably be uh, reviewed to you because we're going through this series on worship in our services in the preaching of our morning services. So a lot of this will be uh, repeated information, but uh, good information that we need repeated to us because we are so prone to forget it. So first, let's begin with the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle is whatever is commanded by the word is required and whatever is not commanded is forbidden. And this principle of worship comes from Deuteronomy 12.32, which says, What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. And so the opposing principle, the opposite uh, principle that many in Uh, the church in Christianity as a whole holds to is the normative principle of worship. And that states that whatever is not forbidden in the word is allowable. But that's contrary to the testimony of the scripture. And it's also contrary to the doctrine of the sinfulness of man. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Decried the normative principle of worship in Mark chapter 7 and verses 6 through 13. And he deals with the Pharisees. This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth his father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is korban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do alt for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. There we see this emphasis, this, this focus upon tradition, the tradition of man uh, in Mark chapter 7 and how Christ deals with the Pharisees. And that's what they were, that, that, that's what they held to. They elevated their traditions, not simply on par with Scripture, which is bad enough, but elevated it above Scripture. They would discount what God's Word said in favor for what they preferred, what they thought was correct, what their traditions were. And that's what the normative principle of worship does. It elevates man-made traditions, man-made superstitions, man-made activities uh, above what the commands of the Lord are. If God has not commanded it, Scripture says it is not to be done in worship in any way in any form.
1: Do the normative principle have any scripture that they use at all to break, base their position on, it, even out of context?
0: Uh, the most popular one that I've heard the normative people use to justify their position is uh, the verse that says, "Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." And so they will say that because the Spirit has now come and dwells among us and in each individual, that there is freedom to do what we want in worship so long as it's not forbidden by God. Uh, so that, that's really the one that they point to the most. Um, other than that, they'll they'll typically just say, "Yeah, God was very restrictive in the old covenant, but this is the new covenant, and there's there's a lot more freedom." Yeah,
1: if you throw off the old covenant, it's a little easier to walk around like
0: that. Hmm. So, yeah. So everything we do in worship must come from the Bible. Without warrant from the Bible, we are forbidden to do whatever it is that we were thinking of doing. But if the Bible commands something, then we are bound to do it in worship. We are obligated. We, are, we have a duty. If the Scripture commands us to do something and we do not do it, We are sinning. What is sin? Any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. If God has commanded something, that is His law. And to not be conformed to that law or to actively transgress that law is to sin. And that's what happens when we don't obey the commands of God concerning his worship. That's what happens when we don't obey the commands of God, period. But we're looking specifically at his worship. And so this is the guiding principle of the Reformed churches, and of the RPCNA. But there is such thing as strange fire that can be offered in the worship of God. Whatever given to the Lord that is not required of him is a trampling of his court's and is counted as strange fire in the scriptures, and he is displeased by it. We see this in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not, and there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is that the Lord this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people will I be glorified. The Lord will be sanctified in all who come nigh Him. All who draw near to Him. He will be sanctified. He will be kept holy. He will be revered. He will be separate from everything else. And we do that by only rendering worship unto Him that He has commanded to be done. To Not do so is to be guilty of the same sin as Nadab and Abihu, offering strange fire unto the Lord.
1: Can I, can I comment? To me, the, 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 the interesting thing there fire was part of the worship service. So it was not the fire that was the problem, it was how they applied it. Because the sacrifices were consumed of fire. Mm. But we don't know exactly what they did, but they didn't do it the right way. Uh, they, they they changed how it was done. And that was that was where they fell into the problems. You know, one of those wouldn't it be neat if we did it this way instead? type of uh, discussions, I imagine.
0: Yeah, I think that's important for us to remember, you know. It's not simply that we only incorporate the elements of worship that are found in Scripture. Fire was an element of worship. Incense was an element of worship. It's not simply that we only be sure to incorporate the elements of worship in our worship unto the Lord, but to incorporate them as he has commanded And so when we're considering how we worship, you know, yes, singing is commanded by the Lord, but how has he commanded the singing to be done? He's commanded it to be done corporately by the whole body and as uh, the singing of psalms with grace in the heart, unaccompanied by musical instruments. So, it's not simply singing that we have to worry about, it's the entire thing. How has, you know, you know it's not simply baptism that needs to be understood and part of the worship service when, when uh, someone is presented for baptism. Yes, it should be done, but how it is done is equally as important. You know, how has the Lord commanded this to be done? He's commanded it to be done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. He's commanded it to be done by sprinkling or pouring. And he's commanded it to be done by a minister of the word. Those things are important. They are necessary if we are to render unto the Lord worship that is acceptable. Worship that is according to his word. It's not simply the what It is the how as well. Nadab and Abihu offered the elements of worship, fire and incense, but they didn't offer the how as God had commanded because it says that they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. They offered unto the Lord something that he had not commanded. It wasn't the elements themselves. It was something else. And how they did it, that God had not commanded them to do. And so we have to be careful of that. We have to watch ourselves to not make concessions, to not make compromises, to deviate from the way That the Lord has instituted his worship to be done. Because when we start doing that. We start walking a very thin line. Where we may cross over into strange fire. The Lord's commanded things to be done a certain way. The Lord instituted things to be done a certain way. And when we begin deviating from the way in which the Lord instituted something to be done, not simply the what he has instituted, but the way in which he's instituted these things to be done, we're playing on thin ice. And that doesn't mean we can't change things around. But the elements
1: of worship are consistent. I mean, we change it around, change the word, mm-hmm. or or do, do do some of some, some of the things are tradition. This is how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not the word of God necessarily. So we 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 have some flexibility in what we do. But then on the other hand, we don't have much, and we want to be careful not to cross that line. It's always better to stay over here on the side of the line rather than just skirt it. Because you will wind up stepping on the line too easily. I think of the trip I took in Switzerland driving along. and any wrong move and I was off a thousand foot cliff Mm -hmm. on one side. And it was a country road. It wasn't, with no guardrails. It was a fun ride. Only in Switzerland. (laughs) <laughs> it was a slippery slope, yes. <laughs> I'm sure on that slope, as I look down, there is no coming back.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we have to be careful. I mean, there is, there is no excuse for why we would want to see how close we can get before we begin sinning. We should be asking ourselves, how far away from sin can I be so that I'm in full conformity with what the word of God says? That should be our mindset. Not how close can we get before we begin sinning, not how much compromise can we have before we've completely uh, crossed that line. Mm-hmm.
1: We already know Rose that's, that's, that's what they tell us. So, mm-hmm. so I think of the guy in Kentucky, they drive in the middle of the road. Um, so you drive down the road, they all have to move back over to, to, to by each other because they all drive right, right in the middle of the road. Because mm-hmm. uh, they're not used to seeing any traffic. Is this the country road? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is down in rural Kentucky. Yeah. I am picking on Kentucky because from in Tennessee and Alabama
2: we do the same thing, but I don't drive it very
0: often. I mean, it's the same thing down on the a little bit too. I mean, it's that. Definitely... Yeah, I uh, mean that's that. It's so true, and that's a good image for us mm-hmm. to have. When you're driving down a very narrow road, mm-hmm. especially one that has steep embankments on the other side that could cause death, you're going to be much more likely to drive in the center of that road. And stay as far away from either side of those ditches that you can fall into, in order to stay safe. And that's how we need to walk this life, this Christian life, and that's how we need to approach worship, to stay in the center. You know, stay right there on the line that God has given us that we need to follow and not fall into those ditches on the sides because you fall in those ditches yeah you may you may just bang up your car you may get some scratches but you may flip your car 20 times
1: mm-hmm.
0: break your neck and die
1: are going to a tilt
0: and when we're looking at worship Rendering false worship unto Jehovah is deadly. Nadab and Abihu, they offered strange fire unto the Lord and they were consumed because of it. And the New Testament worship is not any less deadly. It's more deadly. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says... Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? Why are we to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear? Because our, for our God is a consuming fire. does that not sound just like Nadab and Abihu? Render unto the Lord the worship that he has commanded. Serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear, because if you do not, he may consume you. Our God is a consuming fire. Fire. In keeping with this, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, 29, and 30, many who profane the Lord's Supper have died. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a consuming fire, and he is still displeased with worship that he considers strange fire. You know, when we look at the nation of Israel, an argument that's always used in combating this is, yeah, but that was in the Old Testament times. That doesn't happen now. You don't see people falling dead left and right because of false worship. Look at the Old Testament. How many millions of people, millions of people were taught the true worship of God in the Old Covenant? And only a handful were killed for their false worship. And then look at how many rendered false worship unto the Lord, who He was gracious and merciful and didn't consume, at least not immediately.
2: Yeah, they may not be consumed, exactly. They may not be consumed immediately, but.
0: Over time, the effects on the church and faithfulness are going to be felt. Mm Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Nadab and Abihu, and then the sons of Korah who were consumed by the earth, and all of these other instances of. Uh, not rendering unto the Lord what he has commanded and and being killed for it. They're all given as examples, physical things that we can put our eyes on to strike fear into our hearts to show us the need for rendering true worship. And the Lord may not consume every person who renders false worship unto him. But is one person not enough to show you that the Lord will do it? Are are, are we willing to put the Lord our God to the test? say, well, he's not killing people now. We can do what we want. He won't kill us. I'll tell you right now, I'm convinced that there are people today who are being consumed, struck down dead for their false worship.
1: Unexpected and untimely death. As we, we, we've seen it, and you scratch your head, go, "Why? Oh mm-hmm. Was that? What, 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 happened, what just happened?" And we, we've seen it. And at least stop and go. What happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is an appropriate question.
0: Yeah, at any time, any time we're confronted with the judgment of God, it ought to cause us to stop, question, examine ourselves, repent of our own sins, and cause us to be more conformed into uh, the pattern that He has called us to be and to live in. Um, I'm convinced that there are still people. To this very day. Who partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And are killed. I think there are a lot more who are weak and sickly. As Paul says. I think there are a lot of churches out there. That are weak and sickly. Because of their partaking of the Supper in an unworthy manner. But I'm convinced that there are still people to this day who die, who are struck dead by the Lord for an unworthy partaking of the Lord's Supper.
1: I want to say also that I'm not convinced we've got it perfect. There's always room to reconsider what we do and how we do it. But we're striving to do things as best we can understand them according to the Lord and to make those applications. So I would say, you know, we need to remain open to counsel. Um, and that's why we're in a Presbyterian form of church government. Because we do have counsel from our brother about how we do things and what we do. And we believe we're doing them the best way we can. We're, try- we're trying to be obedient as best we can. There's always room for improvement. There's always room for reconsideration. Semper reformata, always reforming, um, is is a part of the church and what we're going to be doing. But that doesn't mean we're always iterating,
0: mm-hmm. It
1: means we're always trying. We're striving to do this according to the word of God and to understand it as the best we can. So um, we also need to remain humble in our in our application of worship. That we, we, we think we got it right, but we know we know we don't. We know there's something that can be improved, that can be brought in more alignment with what God's word. Mm-hmm. So we need to remain humble in this as well.
0: Yep. So uh, one of the objections against the regulative principle of worship is that it. Binds the conscience. It negates liberty of conscience. But the exact opposite is true. It's only in biblically regulated worship that liberty of conscience is preserved. The regulative principle of worship preserves the worshiper's conscience. As all parts of the worship services are found from the Bible, the one place a conscience is to be captive to, then they will not have impositions in worship thrust upon them. Instead of legalism, the regulative principle is true freedom in worship. The true legalism is imposing things upon people that are not commanded in Scripture and binding people to it, to the observance of it. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, paragraph 2 states, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word. Or besides it, if matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience, and reason also. So it's not simply a violation of liberty of conscience to impose these things. It violates, uh, it betrays true liberty of conscience for you to observe these things, to bind yourself to them to hold these things in your own conscience and to say they should be done. True liberty is only found when one is made a slave to Christ. That sounds oxymoronic, but it's true. The only freedom that can be found is when you become a slave to Christ and obey every one of His commands because His commands are good. They're for your benefit. They're for your good. They're for your edification, for your instruction, for your sanctification. And the doctrines and commandments of men, they cannot be that. And so you cannot be bound to observe the traditions of men, the commandments of men. That's legalism. Obedience to the commands of Christ, that's liberty. So what are the ordinary elements of worship? I'm going to run through this quickly because we've had much preaching on this. Um, The ordinary elements of worship. It's important to understand the ordinary elements in our worship service because they are what we will regularly observe in public worship. Prayer in the name of the Son according to his will, reading of the scriptures, the preaching of the word, the singing of psalms, the sacraments administered and received. And besides these, there are occasional elements of worship. So those are the ordinary elements of worship. Then there are occasional elements of worship that we celebrate when providence dictates. And those are religious oaths, which taking on this covenant of communicant membership is a religious oath. And that will be done in the worship service. Because it is an element of worship. Solemn fastings. So calling a fast day and having a service for it. And thanksgivings, public thanksgivings. Recognizing the uh, providence of the Lord and his generosity to us. And calling a day of thanksgiving. And having a worship service for that. And we talked a little last week during lunch, how can we deny uh, the holy days, the set days for observance of religious things, but then also say that it's okay to have days of fasting or days of thanksgiving. And the difference is, uh, one is set up by the church as A perpetual thing to be observed uh, concerning religious things in a way that God has not commanded. Whereas days of solemn fasting and thanksgiving are recognitions of God's providence in a single moment and calling a single day to be observed in prayer, in fasting or in thanksgiving and having a service towards those ends. It's not a perpetual thing. It's not attaching religious significance to things that the Lord has not commanded us to. We're not instituting holy days when we call days of fasting or thanksgiving. It's simply recognizing the Lord's providence Either recognizing the Lord's providence and how he has caused great judgment upon us and we call a day of fasting, recognizing the Lord's providence that uh, there's a great uh, sickness or disease or, you know, someone is gravely injured and on the brink of death and calling a day of fasting and prayer for those things. Or recognizing the Lord's providence and his blessings to us, and the great things that he has poured out upon us, and then having a day to recognize that and to give thanks unto him. They're not holy days, they're days that we're called to observe by the Lord. He calls us to do these things. So there's one major difference but they're not perpetual. They're one-time things. Last year after Synod, uh, the the Synod uh, set aside a certain day to be a day of prayer and fasting. When that day comes around again this year, I don't even remember when it was, July 20-something, I think, of 2022. When that date comes around this year, we're not doing another day of fasting because last year's Senate had had called for a day of fasting. It's a one time thing. Not to be repeated. The only time you'd call it again is in response to certain providences that you have experienced. If you take the membership covenant, it will be in the worship service because it falls under religious oaths, as I've said. And remember that all parts of the service are worship. Every part of it, prayer, reading of scripture, preaching, singing, the sacraments. Religious oaths, solemn fasting, thanksgiving, those are all parts of worship. And so every element of the service must have a worshipful frame, a worshipful spirit, a worshipful demeanor. And we must maintain a worshipful attitude throughout them. Uh, It kills me whenever uh, you talk with one of these big box evangelical uh, church members, you know, they ask you about the worship at your church. What are they asking about? Yeah, they're not asking about how your pastor preaches. They're not asking about the, the pastoral prayer. All they care about is the singing. Singing. Our modern evangelical mindset has condensed worship to the act of singing. And that's not true. All of these things are worship. When you pray, you are worshiping. When you read the scripture, you are worshiping. When you sit under the preaching of the word, you are worshiping. When you receive the sacraments administered, you are worshiping. When you take religious oaths and vows upon yourself, you are worshiping. When you fast, you are worshiping. And when you render thanks unto the Lord for his divine blessings, you are worshiping. And you have to remember that. Every part of our service is an act of worship, and you are to be engaged in it.
1: So, for example, we close a service and then we have announcements. That's not part, it's not an act of worship, having announcements. So, we do that following the service. We read the confession, because it's not reading the word. And it's important that we understand the confession. So we want to include that, but we don't want to include it as part of the worship, as an element of worship.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I will say I used to do it. We used to do that all the time, have reading of the confession as part of the worship. And, uh, so, you know, was I on the were we on the edge of going the precipice? or in the middle of the road doing that we should have done it let's just put it that way we should have been as we're doing it now not a part of worship because it's not, it's not the Lord but it's important mm-hmm. to understand the doctrines contained therein so you know, it's, it's a tricky thing you know, we want to put emphasis on it is an important document it's something you need to know so we are reading it afterwards but not part of it. it's not an element of worship um, it's not
0: yep um, absolutely does that
2: help? in terms of what we're trying to do? Well, you're speaking about the liberty of conscience and how uh, there are things in worship that are to be observed but things change time to time there's we go towards the middle of the road to make a corrective on the left-hand side or on the right-hand side on um, run off the fact that we um, read the Apostles' Creed, for example. Uh, you would not accept that uh, as proper or the religious principle, of worship, even though we have done this as a church. Mm-hmm. We actually have
1: some of the old Psalters that the Apostles' Creed blew to the front page. And the psalter. Because apparently, the, the, old, the old Chicago congregation never read it. Or mm. read it regularly. Yeah. And it's, it's a great outcome. We're
0: not saying it's a bad thing. The it's It's that the reading of confessions and creeds and catechisms is not commanded to be done in worship, they're to be done. We're, we're, we're to learn from them. We're to make confessions of faith. We're to, you know, know our creeds, what we believe, why we believe them. You know, we're, we're to be instructed in the doctrines of the church, which is what the catechism does. But those are not parts of worship and are not to be done in worship. Um. And so, you know, like what happened here, when we come to understand something that we're doing is not in conformity with Scripture, we don't continue it, we change it. uh, Because we are called to be in conformity with Scripture. Um, And... uh, I think I've said this probably a thousand times in this worship series that I'm preaching. We need to be examining ourselves individually and corporately as the church to see if there is something in our practice that does not line up with scripture. And if so, we ought to reform it. Uh, And so when we see something that is either not commanded to be done in worship at all, like the reading recitation of confessions, creeds, catechisms, that needs to be done away with completely. When we see practices that are not in alignment with the way, not just the what, but the way in which God has instituted it, which Christ instituted it, then we ought to seek reformation in conforming our practice to even the way in which it was instituted, Uh, those things which are important to what is actually done. Um, And so, you know, we're not saying that, you know, the Lord's going to strike us down and destroy Westminster Church because, you know, we may sing a psalm that's not a great translation. You know, there may be better translations of that psalm, but we're not saying that it's sinful to do that, to to sing a psalm that's not necessarily a great translation. What what we are saying is we ought not put God to the test and when we see something that is not in accord with what he has commanded, it needs to be reformed. Any other? Yes. Quick question uh, for
2: Richard. So you mentioned something about the freedom of the conscience. Yeah, I I love it's counterintuitive that we're going to be practicing the relative principle of worship but those that practice the other side of things oh you're binding your conscience to this principle, I don't see this in scripture Uh, so that is is this a a priority isn't this a priority that we have that we would uh, worship uh, freely according to the scripture But uh, is that um, I guess is that sufficient? to direct us in worship or is there something else that we would need in order to uh, use that in a correct manner like how we do things in worship like using those elements that were mentioned
0: yeah I mean freedom like I said freedom only comes when one is bound to Christ and to his word um and so, yeah, the, the accusation is brought against those who hold the Rayota the principle that, you know, we're just binding people's consciences. We don't, we're not expressing the liberty of conscience. And, you know, I'm not afraid to say, yeah, I'm binding people's consciences. But it's not me that's binding. It's the word that's binding. And we all are all of our consciences ought to be bound by the word of God. Um, and it's in that being bound by the word that we have true liberty that we're not bound by the innovations of man or the traditions and doctrines of man
2: Um,
0: we've got two more sections really quick let me run through them and they deal with our Uh, position concerning sung praise. We've we've gone over this quite extensively in the preaching. Uh, So I'm going to run through what's said here, and then hopefully we'll have a couple of minutes for questions at the end. So we here, we practice the exclusive singing of Psalms. Uh, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ... Dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians five eighteen and 19 says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, making, uh, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord and this is perhaps the feature of this congregation that seems most distinct people coming into this church from the outside will notice this first because it's right there in your face the a cappella singing of psalms exclusively in worship and this seems uh, a distinctive practice of of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, but it was once the universal practice of the early church and of Reformed churches. Not the Lutherans, but the Reformed. The case is made through the following points. The Bible requires a positive warrant for any element of worship, Deuteronomy 12.32. The positive warrant for singing comes with a command to sing psalms, Psalm 105, verse 2 and many others. The positive warrant for hymn singing must come from Colossians 3:16 and Ephesians 5:18 and 19. But the psalms, hymns and spiritual songs are all titles that are given to the psalms in the Septuagint in the Greek Old Testament. And so the title of Psalm 75 reads, to the end among hymns, hymnos, a psalm, psalmos, by Asaph, a song, ode, to the Assyrian. So Psalm 75 uses all three of the Greek words, that's found in Colossians 3:16 and Ephesians 5.19. The churches in Colossae and Ephesus would have used the Greek Old Testament. And this trifold enumeration of one concept, a psalm, with three elements, is called a Hindiatris. One through three, expressing one thought by using three terms. We see this throughout Scripture. Exodus 34, 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Deuteronomy thirty-sixteen keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. 1 Timothy 2, 1, supplications, prayers, intercessions. And so the apostle referred to the one hundred and fifty Psalms when he wrote the words Psalms and Hymns and Spiritual Songs. And this case is easily made for uh, the the case is easily made for the excellency of psalms over human hymns. This is a really easy case to make. The psalm writers were the prophets of God, and the Spirit spoke by them. The same cannot be true of hymn writers. The scriptures are sufficient for the matter of praise. Hymns are not said to be sufficient. The psalms are doctrinally pure and perfect as the word of God. Thy word is truth. How many times have you flipped through a hymnal? Uh, You should do this sometime. Get a hymnal. You can find one probably at a thrift store for a dollar. Find a hymnal and go through and circle all the hymns that teach false doctrine and heresy. There's a ton. The Psalms testify of Jesus Christ and the gospel sheds new light on them. The Psalms are a mini-Bible and contain every doctrine and every lawful emotion for the Christian. They contain imprecations that allow us to sing against God's enemies. They cannot bind the conscience of the worshiper because you're commanded to sing them, whereas if we were singing man-made hymns, you would be bound to sing something that is not the word of God. They are ecumenical songs that all of God's people can sing together. The psalms that you sing here are the very psalms that our brothers and sisters in China sing, or in Japan, or that our Reformed forefathers sang as they were being Brought to the stake for execution. Yeah, it may be a different arrangement, a slightly different translation, but it's the very same Psalms. It connects us to all of our, uh, all Christians throughout the world and to uh, our history. They can be translated for every nation, tribe, and tongue, and in fact, they have been. I have psalters at my house in Spanish, Japanese, and Chinese. Um, I know that there is a new Romanian psalter that was just published this past year. They are sung, they were sung by Jesus and are part of our union with Christ's experience. Christ is the voice of the Psalms. The Jews sing them when they are, the Jews will sing them when they are engathered, and they will sing them as new songs in Christ. They already sing them now with a veiled understanding. But when they are engrafted in, as Romans 11 tells us, they will sing them as new songs, understanding now their truth in Christ. Uh, I'll let you take the time to look at the historical case that's made. And we sing the Psalms a cappella because the... Instruments were part of the temple system, and this is evident in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verses 25 through 29. Uh, The sacrificial ceremonial system of the old covenant has passed away, and all of those things pertaining to it has passed away. And so we see now in Hebrews that the, the true New Testament sacrificial worship is to offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually that is the fruit of our lips. That is what we are to render unto the Lord, not instruments, but the praise of our lips. And then the Reformed Presbyterian testimony uh, in section 21 six says the psalms are to be sung without the accompaniment of instruments, which are not part of the New Testament pattern of worship. Musical instruments were commanded for use with the offering of sacrifices in the Old Testament temple worship. The death of Christ being the perfect and final sacrifice brought an end to this way of worship. There is neither command for it nor example of the use of musical instruments in the words or practice of Christ and the apostles. The command of the New Testament is to offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. And that's why... We worship the way that we do because God has commanded it to be done. We do not have warrant to add to it or to take away from it. Really quickly, are there any questions or comments on this? Yes.
2: I was thinking about the whole strange fire. Um, would you consider you know, how we use the elements would it be considered strange fire, like someone's mind wanders off in prayer or reading, you know, those sorts of things? Because that's also how we're doing. It, since we're all yeah. worshiping, you know, while we pray, while we read. Yeah,
0: I mean, we are we are called to worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, we're called to worship and serve God with reverence and godly fear, and so it, it is. A, a perversion of the worship when we do those things, when we let our mind wander, when we're not paying attention. You know, um, I, I think I think you can rightly say it's strange fire. Now, obviously, we're talking. There are differences in degrees, and so you know, while it is sinful to let your mind wander during prayer it is more heinous to uh you know have the mass. Two totally different things, levels of degrees. And so yeah, I, I think you can rightly call that strange fire, while also understanding that there are greater severity, uh greater levels of severity that can be attributed to other Acts of strange fire. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, kind of like what the commandos do. Mm-hmm. It's
0: yeah.
2: I think it's, uh, it's just our
1: nature. God made us that way. Uh, I found myself sometimes in a sermon. I, you know, the, 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 the pastor has moved on, but I'm still going down a rabbit hole in my head over what was said. Um, Am I wool gathering? Am I simply not paying attention or am I working and trying to understand what's being said? Yes, all that. Mm. Um, you know, but, but part of it's our human nature. And, and well, we, we, uh, God has created us this way to be thoughtful, to be uh, uh, you know, creative and exploring. And um, while I agree, it's not what we want to do. Uh, Paul said, I, "I do all these things. I do. I don't do what I should do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we don't. We, we we are sinners, fallen, and we continue to fall. But we're also forgiven."
0: And, uh, yeah, and there's a difference between meditating upon something that was said in the sermon and kind of chewing on that mentally. And, you know, not continuing mentally with where the pastor's going because you're still chewing on something. There's a difference between that and sitting there in, in the worship service and, you know, thinking in your mind, I wonder what I'm going to be having for lunch today.
1: Yeah, so sometimes I wish you'd just go sit down for a few minutes <laughs> and pick back up, oh, but that's Look, let me think about that. But you don't know when those bullets are. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right, Uh, well, we will conclude our church information class next week. And uh, then we will, uh, the following week, we will pick back up where we left off in our Understanding Biblical Doctrines workbook. So, uh, Richard, can you close us in prayer? Sure.
2: Lord God,